Welcome to Coog's Talk Stock from WSU Extension, a science-based podcast about animal agriculture for those that raise food animals, those that are interested in learning how, and those that want to learn more about where their food comes from. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Coog's Talk Stock. Hello, this is Sarah Dreger, a graduate student here at WSU studying room nutrition within the animal science department, and your host today for Coog's Talk Stock. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Neff to talk about GMOs today. Dr. Neff got his PhD from UW in Botany and is now a WSU professor of crop biotechnology, director of the Molecular Plant Sciences PhD program, and assistant chair to the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences. Welcome, Dr. Neff. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Today, we're going to be discussing GMOs, so let's jump right into it. GMO stands for Genetically Modified Organism. Can you explain what that term means? GMO stands for a genetically modified organism, as you said. And when we talk about genetically modified organisms, we're specifically talking about organisms that have had DNA inserted into their genome. This DNA can come from other related organisms or even distantly related organisms, or at some times it can come from the actual genome of the organism that we're genetically engineering. Genetic engineering does not refer to breeding or cloning but specifically to inserting pieces of DNA into a genome using the techniques of molecular biology. So what are the differences between plant breeding, GMOs, and clones? In plant breeding, what happens is a breeder will make a sexual cross in most cases between two different individuals. These can be individuals of the same species, or they could be individuals of closely related species that are compatible sexually. The breeder then selects for particular traits that are desirable for the particular end product that is being generated. And this could be true for animal breeding as well as plant breeding. Clones are where we take an individual, it could be an animal or a plant, and then make genetically identical copies of that individual. A lot of clones, a lot of plants are actually propagated through cloning. And one example of that would be orchids. If you take seeds from an orchid and plant them out, the children from that mother will not look the same as the mother. And that's because of the genetic makeup of the mother. Whereas if you use cloning, in this case, through the process of tissue culture, then you can create orchids that are genetically and phenotypically or visually identical to the mother. In the case of GMOs, what we're doing is we're taking one or a few genes and then inserting them directly into a genome without making any other changes. So plant breeding makes a lot of changes through sexual crosses and then selection. Clones make absolutely new changes at all. And GMOs basically are taking an individual organism and making one change at one spot in the genome. So to clarify, when you say sexual breeding and matching, you just mean that those genomes are close enough together to be able to create children. Yes, that's true. So there are some plants that can hybridize and you can basically create a hybrid between two different species of a plant. This is done sometimes, for example, in grasses. In fact, this type of a technique is often used for bringing in disease-resistant traits from distant relatives into a crop plant, for example. Now, when we talk about GMOs, I want to be clear that breeding is often used as a part of the GMO process, as well as cloning can be. 
but GMO specifically involves taking a gene or a group of genes from one organism and inserting them into another organism. So what prompted this technology to be developed and what makes it valuable still today? That's a great question. So when we think about plant breeding, after that first cross is done, it can take 10 to 20 years to generate a new variety that can be grown by farmers. The idea behind GMOs was developed as people had started to understand molecular biology in the 60s and the 70s, as well as other techniques like tissue culture. The advantage of GMOs is instead of taking, for example, I gave that example of a disease-resistant trait in a distant relative. So for potatoes, you could take a distant relative that is not a good crop, but is resistant to a particular disease that has a major impact on the potato crop. And you can do a cross and then over many, many generations and years, select for potatoes that now are disease resistant and hopefully have maintained all of the desirable traits of the potato tuber in that original cross. The idea with with GMOs is that you could take that disease resistant gene from that distant relative and then transform or insert that gene into an elite potato variety and very quickly generate an elite potato variety that is also disease resistant. That's just one example. So there's a lot of concerns in the public about GMOs. We just learned about why this is valuable. Are there any viable concerns with their use that we should be aware of, such as transgenic genes crossing into native or heirloom species, or weeds becoming Roundup ready? That is a great question. So when we talk about this particular technology, there have been a lot of concerns that have been raised by people. Some of those concerns are based on a lack of knowledge or are based on misinformation that has been spread to the public through social media and other methods. Now, the point here is that GMOs are just as safe as their non-GMO counterpart except for the addition of the gene that's been added. Now, what I mean to say there is, if a gene that's been added in doesn't change the safety of the crop, for example, making it disease resistant, would have no impact on the humans that are consuming it. We have no evidence that the process of making a crop, a GMO crop, is dangerous in itself. However, you could insert a gene in that would make someone sick. This isn't a really good business model because it takes a tremendous amount of money in order to be able to generate these GMO crops. So scientists and companies that have developed these technologies have had to choose particular traits that are going to be marketable and used by a large group of farmers and are also, as far as we can tell, safe for human consumption. During the process of of licensing or approving of these GMO crops, it's important that scientists demonstrate that there is no safety difference between the original uh, version of the plant before it was made what we call transgenic or genetically modified and the genetically modified version. Now, we talk about transgene escape. Let's talk first about one of the major traits that's been put into GMO crops, and that is herbicide resistance or Roundup Ready. When we are talking about corn or soybean, which are two major crops that are grown throughout the center of the country, 
There are no wild weedy relatives or corn of corn or soybean that could cross with those crops to create, for example, weeds that are Roundup ready or um, are herbicide resistant. There are other examples, though, where we have had problems. And one excellent example is Roundup ready creeping bent grass. This is a technology that was developed by Scott's company, Scott's Turf. And the idea was that this creeping bent grass, if it was made Roundup ready, you could, well, creeping bent grass itself is used on golf courses um, for putting greens and tee boxes. And one of the problems with maintaining a tee box or a putting green is that other grasses can become weeds and they can, can become difficult to manage. And golf courses, especially really nice golf courses, want to have their greens and their tee boxes look perfect. So Scott's came up with the idea of generating Roundup Ready creeping bent grass that could be used uh, in, in the presence of or with Roundup to control these other weeds. The problem is, is that creeping bent grass is wind pollinated. And there are other varieties of creeping bent grass that are grown for other purposes. And there are also weedy varieties of creeping bent grass. The problem here then, as you can see, is that the pollen from these Roundup Ready creeping bent grass varieties can escape into the wild. And that is exactly what happened in Oregon and the Willamette Valley and other seed producing areas. So we have to think very carefully about the traits that we're using, as well as the plant that we're making a GMO from. In fact, I visited with Scott's when they were talking about generating GMO turf grasses, and the piece of advice that I gave to them was, I don't think that making Roundup Ready creeping bent grass is a good idea. So I'm hearing that they do need to consider at-risk species for crossing. Um, about how long does it take for a GMO crop to be approved as far as a safety wise? That can take probably about five years. It depends on how much money you want to spend on the on the experiments to test for it and whether or not you're trying to sell that market, that GMO in the United States or in the United States and internationally. Now, each country and each region has different rules for defining a GMO as well as whether or not it needs to be tested. In the United States, one of the uh, current def definitions of needing to test a GMO is if any bacterial genes are used in the transgenic process. And so to be clear, when we talk about Roundup Ready, that gene actually came originally from a bacteria that was resistant to the herbicide Roundup. And in some cases, when we make transgenic plants, we use bacteria. In other cases, we don't. First, in Scott's case, they used no bacteria during the transformation process, and they used no bacterial genes in generating the plant. And creeping bent grass is not a food source for humans. So they didn't have to go through the same level of testing that one would have to go and, and regulation that one would have to go through, for example, to generate Roundup Ready corn or insect, uh, uh, insect resistant corn. So it, it's a complicated question. You also asked earlier about uh, when you were talking about transgene escape. So the transgene is the, is the gene that we've inserted into the, into the genome. Um, talk about transgene escape into native or heirloom species, 
it also becomes a little bit more complicated there. It depends, again, on the mating system for a given plant. Some plants will self-pollinate almost exclusively. Other plants have to outcross. And some plants can actually make seeds without any crossing at all. An example of that would be creeping, uh, would be, excuse me, Kentucky bluegrass, which is what we call apomictic, where when the 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 pollen lands on the on the flower the mother's genome just doubles and makes a seed that is identical to the mother's genome so when we talk about heirloom species we need to know about how those heirloom species are pollinated and whether or not there's a risk for that pollen to get onto those heirloom species but this is also true for breeding anytime that you have a variety that has been bred and there are other varieties of that same species nearby if it's an open pollinated plant for example like creeping bentgrass then you have to be worried about bringing in pollen from other varieties of creeping bentgrass whether they're genetically modified or not. So that's a breeder's problem. But another thing that's very interesting is that there are heirloom species, for example, of tomatoes that are not disease resistant. And so they're very difficult to grow. And so GMOs could actually create an, a situation where we can have disease resistant heirloom tomatoes that now can be grown more efficiently by farmers or even by the home grower. Thank you. That was very interesting. So to move in a little bit of a different direction, the first GMO meat to be approved by the FDA was farmed salmon back in 2015. It's available in Canada, but it's not on U.S. shelves because many wholesalers and retailers don't want to sell it. I know your area of expertise is in the plant side, but what are your concerns and professional opinion with both the product and the public's reaction to it? Oh, that's so that is a very complicated question. And the answer is even more complicated. As you've probably already figured out, the word complication comes up a lot in my answers. So I, as you said, I'm not an expert on GMO salmon. My area of expertise is in plants. However, I am also a fisherman and I love catching and eating salmon. We have a lot of things that we need to think about when we're trying to maintain our salmon population. And one of the questions we need to ask is the same sort of question that we're asking when we're talking about GMO plants, and that is about breeding systems. So in this particular case, these farmed salmon that are GMO are Atlantic salmon. Now, Atlantic salmon cannot breed, as far as I know, with coho or king or chum or pinks or the other salmon that are in the Pacific Northwest. So that may not be a problem, but we do have salmon farms in the Pacific Northwest, and those are Atlantic salmon, and we have had examples where those salmon have escaped from those farms. Now, the impact that those salmon can have when they escape from the farm is essentially the kind of impact that an introduced weed could have on a population. So we have to be very careful about how to manage or address the concerns when farmed Atlantic salmon escape into Puget Sound when we're trying our best to maintain and grow our native salmon stocks. Okay, so with all that in mind, it's unlikely as I understand it that these GMO salmon will actually be farmed the way Atlantic salmon are farmed in, say, Puget Sound. My understanding is that they are grown inland and in areas where they wouldn't have contact with other salmon. So again, the real concern here is the biology of the genetically modified organism and the biology of the organisms that it might be sexually interacting with or hybridizing with. And so Canada 
has decided that they have a way to maintain this uh, safety level. And the United States, for whatever reason, has decided to not go down that route. It's also possible that U.S. consumers are not prepared yet to purchase GMO salmon. I know many U.S. consumers are concerned about purchasing farmed salmon. So it's a very complicated question. And I think it would probably be better if you spoke with a salmon biologist who understands the, um, the rules that are associated with maintaining and producing these GMO salmon in Canada and how those rules might have an impact on production in the United States. I'll be sure to find some additional resources for our listeners that they can further explore um, GMO farmed salmon. I think that some people might be surprised to learn how few fruits and vegetables at the grocery store even have GMO available versions. Can you share with our listeners what products may or may not be GMO? So the two main GMO products that are grown in the United States, I had mentioned this earlier, are corn and soybean. The reason that those two were chosen is because what we call the agricultural breadbasket of the United States, the center of of the Midwest and a large, large portion of that area is dedicated to growing corn and soybean. And that has to do with the summer weather and the periodic rain so that these are crops that don't need to be irrigated the way uh, many crops in, say, the central uh, Washington state are irrigated. These are crops that are grown and used for many, many different uh, sources, including animal feed as well as human feed. So Monsanto, one of the – and now they're now owned by Bayer, but the company then called Monsanto was one of the very – not the first, but one of the first companies to develop GMO crops. And they decided to invest that in developing corn and soybeans. Now, the process of making GMO corn or soybean is extremely time-consuming, especially for learning how to do that. And and then on top of that, the costs for uh, testing and licensing, uh, getting approval for these crops is also very expensive. So the reason, one of the reasons why they chose corn and soybean was because there was such a large market that they would eventually be able to recover the millions of dollars of investment by having a large group of farmers use that farm that particular product. The reason that they chose Roundup Ready and insect resistance was because both of those would save farmers quite a bit of money. And even though they would be charging the farmers more for the seed, the farmers still would be able to increase their profit by having lower inputs such as fuel and herbicide or insecticides to generate that. Now, a lot of that corn and soybean is processed into other foods. So there are certainly foods on our supermarket shelves that are made with uh, GM corn and soybean products. In the case of corn, often it's a high fructose corn syrup that comes from GM corn. But also both corn and soybean are used for animal feed. In fact, most of that GM corn and soybean has been used for animal feed. There are a few other crops that are GM. There is genetically modified canola. We have genetically modified cotton. In fact, if you're wearing jeans right now, you're probably wearing genetically modified jeans or other cotton clothes. There are some squashes that are genetically modified. And papaya is also another genetically modified crop. 
papaya being grown in Hawaii and squashes being grown in the United States. In both of those cases, those traits are actually for disease resistance, for viruses that can infect those crops. There aren't a lot of GMO crops that are on the market right now. And when you see something like GM-free salt, okay, something that's labeled as GMO-free, and there is no possible way that any genetically modified salt existed in the world, then obviously that's a little bit misleading. And so when we see produce on our shelf, most of it is not going to be genetically modified. In fact, sweet corn that we often, the ones that we buy in the store, just recently became genetically modified or approved for genetic modification. Whereas for many, many years, sweet corn was not genetically modified. I know in the case of papaya, isn't all papaya GMO because it was the disease went through Hawaii and like wiped all of them out? Is that true? Can you clarify or am I misunderstanding? So the bulk of the papaya that's grown in Hawaii is GMO, but you can buy non-GMO papaya. And there's two ways. In fact, generally speaking, if you're buying organic food, you are not buying GMO. In the United States, you cannot call something organic if, if you know that it's genetically modified and then being grown. Now, let's just, I'm going to come back to the papaya in a second, but that, that sweet corn example that I was just talking about, sweet corn that is genetically modified is generally insect resistant. And so you can actually grow that particular trait, that particular sweet corn in an organic production because you add in the insect resistance into the corn that you're growing. The problem is because it's GMO, you cannot call it organic. And there are, at some farmer's markets, someone will be selling you uh, pesticide-free sweet corn. And if you ask them, they will usually tell you, yes, this is actually genetically modified, and that's how I could grow it without pesticides. Okay, so you can buy organic papaya. And organic papaya, a lot of it, is grown in Mexico. So there are non-GMO papaya that are available. The virus that infects papaya, and this is the disease that the genetically modified trait makes them resistant to, is spread by insects. And the problem is, is that it's very difficult for us to control where insects go. In fact, in Hawaii, the papaya productions that developed this virus were found on one island. And one of the ways that they the initial ways that they saved that agricultural industry was to identify plants that were disease-free, destroy all of the rest, and then move all of the papaya plantations or farms to a different island. Eventually, the insects with the virus came to the other island and reinfected the papaya. And that's why GM papaya was developed. Okay, but there's one more caveat, one more little bit of com complication. There is organic papaya that is grown in Hawaii. But I already told you that GM papaya cannot be called organic. The way that they grow organic papaya in Hawaii is by taking the organic papaya production fields, which are non-GMO, and completely surrounding them by GM papaya fields. And what this does is it basically creates 
what we call herd immunity, where if most of the population is resistant to a disease, then the level of the disease gets so low that it doesn't have a major negative impact on the entire population. So in the papaya case, if you surround your organic papaya with GM papaya, then the insects that are feeding on the papaya will not be carrying a virus because the GM papaya doesn't have the virus, and therefore those insects will not be transmitting the virus to the organic papaya field in the center. Wow, thank you. That was very yeah, interesting. It's a, it's a great story. So you mentioned earlier about being labeled GMO-free on products that aren't even GMO. Why do they do this? Most likely it's a marketing uh, situation. So people are often afraid of GMOs. And as I said, some of the reason that people are afraid of GMOs is because of misinformation that has been spread. Pictures of mutant humans, uh, all, you know, the fusion of a fish with a goat with a block of cheese. There's so many images out there. You just Google anti-GMO images and you'll find tons of them. That's one area. There are other areas of misinformation out there. So then there are companies that have re recognized that they can put a label on their product that says GMO free and they can charge more for that product because people will buy it because they think that the same products that don't say GMO free must have GMOs in them. But if this product is made from a crop or an organism where there are no GM counterparts, then in my opinion, that's essentially false advertising. It's true that it's GMO-free, but the implication is that it is better than the non-GMO-free labeled versions just because they actually might be GMO. There are groups that are trying to change the way the, or the legality of labeling something as GMO-free what could ne that could never be GM in the first place. I've actually seen bottled water that's labeled GMO-free bottled water. That to me makes absolutely no sense. There is no way that water could be genetically modified. And to actually sell something as GMO-free when every bottled water out there is GMO-free seems to me to be disingenuous. I have a... Another question for you. So you mentioned that corn and soy are allowed to be GMO-free. And growing up on a wheat farm myself, why is wheat not allowed to be GMO-free? Oh, yeah, right. Or, why, why do we yeah. have no g genetically modified wheat? So I've actually had yes. people tell – I've had people tell me that we're completely surrounded by genetically modified wheat. That's absolutely not true. There is no genetically modified wheat that is in production. People have made – GMO wheat or transgenic wheat as a part of their research. So we use GMOs not only to make food, but we also use the technology of GMOs in order to learn more about what genes do. This is what I do in my lab. I have high school students and undergrads that are making their own transgenic plants, their own GMO plants, as a part of the research that we do in my lab. So one could make GM wheat. But now Whitman County here where, where Pullman is located is the largest wheat producing county in the United States. Where does most of that wheat go? Almost all of it is sold to Southeast Asia markets. Those markets have said that they will not purchase any GMO wheat. As a result, 
Basically, no one's going to grow GM wheat here because the market, the, the where we make our money by selling that product would say we will not buy that particular product. So a lot of these decisions, I think, I hope you can see that a lot of these decisions are basically made because of money. Where can we save money by generating a GM free crop? I mean, generating a, ge- a genetically modified crop. Um, if we can't sell it to anyone, then there's no point in actually making that. So it, it, it's very complicated. Um, but right now, just to be very clear, none of the wheat that is grown in the United States for commercial production is genetically modified. Thank you. So to wrap this up, are there any common misconceptions or misinformation that you'd like to clarify before we Actually, and I mean, the misconceptions are, are basically that GM is dangerous. It could give you cancer. It can kill you, whatever the, you know, the latest claim is because it's genetically modified. And that's absolutely not the case. We could create, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, a genetically modified organism that would be dangerous. That doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, when Scott's had the problem with the GM transgene escape with their creeping bent grass, it cost them a tremendous amount of money. They were fined about $500,000 for um, not being uh, maintaining the crop correctly. But on top of that, they actually contaminated uh, grass production fields around them, and they had to buy those fields up, take them out of production, and then ultimately uh, demonstrate that they're GM-free to sell them back or sell them back at a much lower rate. So they lost a lot of money in that particular situation, uh, which is why when companies are coming up with a model for generating something that's transgenic, that they think very carefully about the market and about the impacts and uh, the the populations of, of surrounding plants. So there is a lot of misinformation out there and there are a lot of myths out there. But what I really want to tell you is a, an amazing story that's the flip side, okay? We are sequencing genomes all the time now. The technology for human genomes been sequenced, animal genomes have been sequenced, plant genomes have been sequenced. A couple of years ago, a group of scientists sequenced the sweet potato genome. And they sequenced also wild relatives of sweet potato that don't have the same kinds of characteristics as the crop sweet potato that we grow. And what they discovered in these experiments is that prop, that our um, sweet potato crops that we grow, and these have been selected by humans over many, many generations and hundreds of years to become a crop. Just like most of the crops that we grow were originally wild relatives and humans over a long time selected for higher yield, less shattering of seeds, more disease resistance, all sorts of different traits. Sweet potato farmers always took the largest, um, best tasting and pretty sweet potatoes and regrew those. And that's basically breeding, okay? Early forms of breeding. What the scientists discovered when they sequenced the sweet, sweet potato genome is that sweet potatoes that we buy in the store are naturally transgenic. They are naturally occurring GMOs. Now, one of the ways that we make genetically modified plants is by using a bacterium called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. And this is a soil-borne bacteria that infects plants and then creates a crown gall. 
In fact, if you go to an old orchard or an old vineyard, you will see these sort of lumpy look like scar tissue around the base of the vines and the trees. That's crown gall. And that crown gall is caused by agrobacterium infecting the plant, making the plant GMO, transgenic, and then forcing those transferred or transformed uh, plant cells to feed the bacteria. So we can go out into old orchards and vineyards and they're naturally transgenic. In the case of sweet potato, when that plant was transformed by agrobacterium, for some reason, in some cases, the insertion of that foreign bacterial DNA led to larger potatoes or larger tubers that are more delicious and more marketable. So there are GM crops that are out there, but they're not GMO because they weren't done purposefully by humans. It's just naturally occurring as a process of nature. Well, that's all we have time for today. I could ask you probably 30 more questions, but thank you for coming, Dr. Neff. I definitely learned a lot. You're welcome. I had a wonderful time talking with you, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Thank you again, and you can see the show notes for additional resources. Thank you for listening to the Cougs Talk Stock podcast, brought to you by Washington State University Extension. You can review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you listen. Find us online at soundcloud.com forward slash Cougs Talk Stock, where the additional resources from our podcasts are linked. Let us know if you have any burning questions or suggestions at Cougs Talk Stock at wsu.edu. This podcast is brought to you by Hannah Browse, Sarah Drager, Dr. Don Llewellyn, and Natasha Moffat-Hemmer, and is produced by Connors Communications at Washington State University. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.